turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Get us thinking well this morning. We're going to play a little campaign slogan, Jeopardy. I'm going to give you the slogan, and you're going to guess whose it is. And we're going to go rapid fire. Are you ready? You can't top the copper top. Every kiss begins with K. Think outside the bun. Taco Bell. Obey your thirst. Sprite. Solutions for a smarter planet. IBM. Vicky's ruining it for everybody. She knows all these. American by birth, rebel by choice. We'll see who in here is really the rebels. Harley Davidson. Between love and madness lies obsession. Calvin Klein. Stronger than dirt. Ajax. Save money, live better. I'm sure y'all know that one. Walmart. Where's the beef? Wendy's. Y'all probably don't know this one. We make money the old-fashioned way we earn it. Smith Barney. It's everywhere you want to be. Lisa. I'm all struck her. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's... What happens here stays here. Las Vegas Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. What can Brown do for you? Like a good neighbor? Can you hear me now? Verizon. Verizon. Or was. A mine is a terrible thing to waste. I remember that one growing up. The United Negro College Fund. The best a man can get. Gillette. And then be all that you can be. Army. Alright, so you say, what does that have to do with Father's Day? Well, a lot. Based on her greatest current need, what campaign slogan you think the 21st century American church ought to adopt? Here's my vote. A few good men. You know where that slogan comes from? Dates to? William Jones, he was captain of the Marines, 28-gun frigate Providence, advertising in March 79, Providence, Rhode Island Gazette. The Continental ship Providence, now lying at Boston, is bound on a short cruise immediately. A few good men are wanted to make up her compliment. 200 years later, during the Vietnam era, that slogan was resurrected in Marine recruiting efforts. The Marines are looking for a few good men. Do you know that that is true also of the Lord, that He's looking for a few good men? You know, in Ezekiel 22, God was looking for a few good men, any man, in fact, to stand in the gap to lead the nation of Israel in His way. And sadly, we read in verse 30 this, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Some of you may know, but I found what? None. Not a single man found. And so the result, God allowed natural destruction and degeneration. Do you know that America and her church finds herself in a very similar crisis? 
A desperate need for men to stand in the gap for Jesus Christ today. Amen? Amen. But how many can be found? Go down to Lifeway this week and I will tell you that it tells the story of how many can be found. When the Beth Moore section is this long and the men's section is this long, it tells the story of what is going on in our churches today. That God is searching and looking for a man to stand in the gap for Jesus Christ today and in most churches he can't find one. It led one pastor to say this, as I examine the state of the church, I'm finding it's the men in our churches that are not standing in the gap. Men, we are not stepping up to the plate and fulfilling our God-given responsibility to be the men that we need to be. It's already been said, we are overly blessed at Crossway when you look into this audience at the number of God-fearing, Jesus Christ-loving, Bible-reading, and believing men. And I am thankful for that fact. At the close of 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out some very practical advice on Christian living. It's a call for a few good men. It's a timely call for men everywhere. You don't have to be a dad, just a man. And all walks of life, I don't care if you're 40 or you're 90, whether you're raising kids or grandkids or great-grandkids, and it's not just for men that's part of why I picked this is that it's great advice for all of us that would stand in the gap for Jesus Christ today. There literally is something for everyone in this message this morning. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, just two verses. Verse 13 and 14, Paul writes, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong, let all that you do be done in love. The Word of God, for the people of God, preach in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Word. Father, I thank you for each man that is here today. I pray that you would encourage them and edify them through this message today. Father, help Crossway to be a church that stands in the gap for Jesus Christ. That when you look across the horizon of America today and you look for a man that will stand in the gap for you, that you will see this church and you will recognize it as one that stands up to fight for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you most importantly, though, that you are our Heavenly Father. No matter what relationships we may have here on earth, we thank you for that and that we are your spiritual children through the Jesus that came and gave his life and his blood for us. I pray that you would just fill me with your spirit now as I preach this message to your people. I ask this in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the first admonition Paul gives in calling a few good men to stand in the gap for Christ is be watchful. There's five of them. The first one is be watchful. The word literally means to stay awake, be vigilant. It's more just not being asleep. It's a determined effort at wakefulness. Dr. Barclay says that this word is be on the alert. It was a term, military term, used in giving orders to those that would be posted as sentinels and instructing them that they were not to fall asleep, they were to keep awake, and they were to be ever vigilant because there would be no sleeping while they were on the duty. And so they had to keep an ever vigilant watch. Why would they want to do that? Well, a good soldier doesn't want to fall asleep at the post because he might get caught unaware by one of two people. First is the king. I mean, how embarrassing would that be if your boss found you sleeping on the job? 
You ever been caught sleeping on the job? Back when I was in college, I worked as an orderly at our local hospital, Bedford County General Hospital. It was a slow day, and I thought, well, I'll just go off in this room over here where the pa- there's no patients at all, and I'll take me a nice little nap for a little bit because I'm a college student and I'm worn out. And lo and behold, guess who comes and finds me sleeping in the room other than the director of nursing? It was a very uncomfortable situation, to say the least. So if you get caught by your boss sleeping on the job, it's going to be pretty embarrassing, isn't it? If we get caught by our boss, Jesus Christ, sleeping on the job when He comes back, it's going to be pretty embarrassing, isn't it? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 because there's two main ways that this word is used. One in regards to Jesus and one in regard to old Slewfoot, the devil. And so the most common way we see this word used in the New Testament is in regards to Jesus and His return. 1 John 2.28 serves as a warning to all of us. It says that when Christ returns in the message, we do not want to be red-faced with guilt or lame excuses. And so Matthew 24.42, it says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew 25.13 Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Flip ahead to Mark 13. Thirty-five and thirty through thirty-seven. It says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Luke 12. Thirty-five to thirty-seven. It says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And so I ask you men, search yourself. Are you ready for Jesus Christ to come back tomorrow morning? How about this evening? How about at 2 o'clock? Remember what I said, Dr. Rogers said we ought to live as what? As if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and He's coming back this afternoon. That's how we should live. Dr. Emerson said this about marriage. He says it's a tool and a test to deepen and demonstrate your love and reverence for Jesus Christ. And so how many of us are living like this as if Jesus is coming back in the next hour with regards to our wives and our kids, dads? And so Ephesians 5.25, how well are you fulfilling that? How well are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Man, I don't know about you, but i got a little bit of work to do on that before Jesus comes back. Amen? Turn to 1 Peter 3. 7. It says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so if Jesus were to come back this afternoon, guys, based on how well you've loved your wife as Christ loved the church, how well you've lived with her in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel, would you stand in confidence when He comes back or would you shrink in shame? And then with regards to our wives and our kids, David Siles said the great tragedy of the world is not that it's unreached, but that it's undiscipled. No more so is that true within our own families. Too often, when it does get done, discipleship in a Christian home, who ends up doing it? Mom. Not dad. And that's not to downplay the role of women. It's to say, guys, we're the spiritual leaders. So why do we not do it? Because we're busy. Burden under Satan joke. We're busy building careers, busy making money or a name for ourselves, or busy with one of about ten hobbies. Busy, busy, busy. Another reason is that we outsource it. We say, well, it's the youth pastor's job. That's why we pay the youth pastor to let the youth pastor do it. But God says it's whose job? Buffy Cook's job. It's your job. Dads, we will be the ones that will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment and give an account for our house. And another reason that it doesn't get done is as A.W. Tozer said, only a disciple can make a disciple. And so if you ain't a disciple yourself, Dad, then you can't make one, can you? You know the old saying, it takes one to know one, right? And so it takes one, a disciple, to make a disciple. I love what Bodie said, Bodie Bauckham, he said, you've not got to be some massive Bible scholar to disciple your wife and your kids. Stay one step ahead of them. If you can stay one step ahead of them, then you can disciple your wife and your children. Amen? Amen. And so think about Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. That's a great verse. When it comes to discipling our kids, you shall teach them diligently to your children. His statutes, you shall talk to them when? At a 15-minute uh, time when we just sit around and we have discipleship, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, shall be as frontlets between your eyes, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When they go to Walmart with you, that's an opportunity for you to disciple your kids. When you're at a ball game and the way you act is an opportunity for you to disciple your kids. It does not have to be, and it should not only be a 10-minute, let's hang on, everybody, let's have our discipleship, and then we're done with that, and then we live however. It's every second of the day is an opportunity to teach our wives and our kids. And so if Jesus came back today, based upon how you've been discipling your wife and your children, would you be like, hallelujah, good to see you, Jesus, or would you shrink back in shame? So a good soldier doesn't want to fall asleep be caught unaware by the king and he doesn't want to be caught unaware by the enemy. How devastating would that be? How devastating if you're the one that's to be at the post, the only entrance to the castle, and you fall asleep and the enemy shows up? It's not going to bode too well for all the folks in the castle, is it? And so this word is used in regards to our mortal enemy, Satan. Because he what? Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Not just men, but all of us need to wake up and realize every day we are in the midst of a spiritual war. 
And old Slewfoot is prowling around and he wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal our joy, kill our testimonies, and destroy our lives. Look at Colossians 4.2. This was actually in our reading, if any of you have been keeping up with your praying. I believe it was in there yesterday. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Samuel Chadwick says this, he said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless Bible study, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So be watchful. Why? Because you want to not fall asleep when the king or the lion comes around. Second admonition is stand firm. Second thing he does in calling a few good men to stand the gap for Christ is to stand firm. The word means to stand fast. Stand firm. That's literally what it means. If you're not watchful, then you're not going to be able to obey this command. Because men who are asleep, do they stand up very well? You ever had that experience in class? You know, when you've fallen asleep? Devin over here shaking his head like he ain't never fallen asleep. Not in class. We know he has. I tried to. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there in class and man, it's like hot and the teacher's getting boring and then you're sitting there and you like fall asleep and you knock all the stuff off your desk and everybody turns around and looks at you. Well, Paul's command here is again a military command. It would be given in the heat of the battle. Stand firm. We would say don't break ranks. We've seen many examples of this in history. You remember the movie 300? It's based off the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C. How about, how about the Alamo in the 1800s? One of the biggest that I read of was the defense of Pavlov's house in 1942. Stalingrad was one of the biggest areas to uh, not fall to the Nazis. And one, there were many feats of heroics during this, and one of them was the siege of Pavlov's house. Sergeant Pavlov and his platoon of 25 men were told to defend this strategically important house at all costs. So they took it to heart, ready to die if that's what it required. And so the, hev- the uh, Germans come in with heavy tanks and artillery and even bombed them from the air and they kept the Germans in check for 60 days. 25 men in a house. In contrast, the Battle of France, which France fell, only lasted 45 days. That's standing firm, isn't it? So as good Christians, we're commanded to stand fast. And notice what it says to stand fast in what? The faith in Scripture, in the truths that you have been taught. It's been said that a great oak is only a little nut that held its ground. So be firm in holding and defending the truths of the Bible. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is Peter and John. They serve as a great example of this. Ready to stand the gap and stand firm in the faith. Verse 18, so they called them, Peter and John, and charged them 
not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. And look down to verse 31, and they're praying. And when they prayed, um, or at verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Two thousand years later, we just saw an example of this in our own country, in which a man was standing before Bernie Sanders, and this has nothing to do with politics. I'm not telling it to you because of politics. I'm telling it to you because it's an example of a man two thousand years later that is willing to stand for the truths of Scripture. And Russell Vaught, and he basically did an op-ed in which he said Muslims because they do not believe in the same God we believe in. Amen? Amen. If anyone asks you, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? No is the answer. No. And so he said because of that, then Muslims stand condemned. I have some patients that are Muslims. And I don't run in there and beat them over their head with the Bible. And I don't treat them any differently than I do my Christian patients. But my belief, not because of what I say, but because of what Jesus Christ Himself said in John 3, just after, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It says God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it. Because guess what? It's condemned already. And so if you as a Muslim do not worship Jesus and believe in His sacrifice, guess what? You are condemned. Period. Point blank. But people don't want to hear that. And Bernie Sanders didn't want to hear that. The man was simply standing firm for the truth of what he believed in. And we need to do the same. Let me give you four quick things to help us stand firm. Think about what any good soldier worth his weight does. One, he puts on the proper armor. Would you think a soldier would go out into battle without his camo? Without his radio? Without a gun? Without a helmet? So, what should we do? Go into battle every day with our armor on. Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have it done all to what? Stand firm. Stand firm, having fastened on the belt of truth, the blessed parade of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So guys, which one of those are you neglecting most? Second is, he follows the commands of the commander. I mean, if a general gives a command to a private, what does he expect the private to do? Obey it. If Jesus Christ gives us a command, what does he expect us to do? Obey it. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And then third, a good soldier leaves no man behind. And so, are we investing in other guys here at Crossway Baptist Church? Are we ensuring that spiritually no one is left behind? 
Or do we say, well, look at him. Man, he sure ain't doing very good, but I'm doing a whole lot better than him. How about you grab him up and bring him along with you? There's a formation in the military called the phalanx formation. It was famous because in that day they didn't have big tanks and nuclear weapons. And so what you did is you locked your shields together and your spears in a certain way in which it was impenetrable. And remember, I've said that before. Guys, every one of us here at Crossway, we need to be taking up the shields of faith together and locking them together so the enemy cannot get at all of us. We need to ensure spiritually no one gets left behind. And then throw off all dead weight. Hebrews 12.1, it says that. Let us throw off all the sin that encumbers us. I mean, if it comes down to a soldier has to take off and run to save someone else's life or his, does he want a hundred pounds of backpack on his back? He throws the thing off. When we're running the, the race, we need to throw off that stuff that may weigh us down. Alright, the third thing is act like men. So the third admonition is to act like men. The word simply means man. Properly it means to act as a man, a full-grown, mature man, to be responsible and courageous. We would say this, man up. So to man up, act like men, with regards to this word, has two aspects. One is bravery. Isn't it amazing how many times in Scripture God has to tell His people what? Fear not. You say, well, I'm a man. Nobody has to tell me not to fear and to be brave. Well, really? You know who was one of the baddest dudes in Scripture? My opinion is Joshua. Joshua is a man's man, ain't he? And so what did God have to tell Joshua right from the get-go? He said, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I love David's instructions to Solomon at the end of his life. In 1 Kings 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son saying, I'm about to go the way of the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Be strong and show yourself a man. That's some good advice, ain't it? And then Paul to his child in the faith. A verse that has served me very well. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When we were in the scariest place I've ever been in Africa, those words served me well to stand firm, to act like a man, to be brave and courageous, and to go forward to complete what God had called us to do. And I got to share the gospel on the airways of Uganda because of that. How about Ecuador? Well, man, isn't that like really high up? I don't think I want to go to Ecuador. I've heard it's like really high and you could get sick from being there. Okay, take precaution and go anyway. Fear not. We need to be bold. We need to be taking the gospel to the end of the earth. I mean, Jimmy just came back and I had a conversation with him yesterday about it. Guys, we have no clue, the vast majority of us, how the rest of the world is living. And they have preachers that may or may not even have a Bible. 
and then are telling them things that are wrong. We have been blessed immeasurably by God in this country. And we sit around with our hands underneath our bottoms on padded pews while other people live in houses that look like chicken coops and don't even have the Word of God to read. And we want to stand back and say, well, I'm kind of scared to go over there. Okay, I imagine Moses was scared to leave two million people that were constantly talking bad about him through the wilderness, but he did it anyway. I'm sure Joshua was afraid to go into the promised land and see these giants that were going to potentially kill him, but God had a better thing, a land flowing with milk and honey awaiting for him. We need to wake up, grow up. That's what Paul's saying here. Second is maturity. You know who acts immature? Immature people. Yeah. Go to a middle school. <laughs> right? You know what they have? Drama. But it don't stop middle school. No. I have it in my workplace. I jokingly had a thing of drama mine. Drama mean. You know drama mean? It's a little bottle. It's for uh, inner ear, right? But I said, this is drama mine. Y'all keep your drama to yourself because I don't want it. You know, a lot of people in church need to do that. They need to grow up and be mature and stop bringing drama in the house of the Lord. When you're not mature, then guess what comes in the door? The immaturity with you and all the drama. And when you're not mature, you know what you fall prey to? Wolves in sheep clothing that might eat you. And you also get distracted and lured away by the world. A great study, especially if you are a man, is the lives of Samson and David. They are as different as night is from day. You got both men with great potential to impact God's kingdom. And one, how did he die? Immature, blind, and humiliated. How did the other die? As a man after God's own heart, and there's too many Samsons, men and women, running around in our churches today. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. Or, yeah, 13.11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I what? Gave up childish ways. There's a lot of folks in church today that need to give up childish ways. When Will spoke for Senior Sunday, he said one of the things that he had learned from our house was this, that there's a time to goof off and a time to be serious. And he and Matthew got a very good illustration of that when I told them to stop being goofing off at Walmart and the next one that goofed off was going to get jap slapped and one of them got jap slapped. But some of us never learn that. We never become mature. Paul's telling them, grow up, behave in a manner that's not like a bunch of little bitty baby Christians. And men, we need to grow up and mature. Y'all know me, I'm the biggest kid in here. But there's a time to be serious and a time to goof off. You know, as I was thinking about this last point, y'all know the movie's Diary of a Wimpy Kid? 
There's a false notion in our culture that any man that truly loves Jesus and follows Jesus, the autobiography of his life is Diary of a Wimpy Man, ain't it? But nothing could be further from the truth. The most mature people that I know, men-wise, are those who are radically sold out for Jesus Christ. Alright, the fourth thing is be strong. It's just a root. The word comes from a root that means power. But the interesting thing is this is the only passive form of a verb in this text. In other words, it means be strong not in your power, but in God's power. This one gentleman, I don't know if he preached this, but I imagine he didn't have a whole lot of folks in his congregation after he did, but he said a weak and cowardly soldier is a pitiful object, but a weak kneed cowardly Christian is still more so. He went on to say, much of the unbelief and indifference of these days is caused by the weakness of professing Christians. When a man can point to a soldier of Christ who's deserted his post and fled from the battle, it's no wonder he hesitates to join an army which has such weak and cowardly warriors. Those folks who think to be a man and to be a Christian is to be mealy-mouthed, push-over, run-of-the-litter, simply have not read. Amen? Scripture is full of accounts of strong, brave men, not just physic, uh, spiritually, but physically too. You want to mark a, a passage to read today, guys? 2 Samuel 23. There's a guy that has a book that I'm in the process of reading based on this. In a pit with a lion on a snowy day. 1 Samuel 23, talking about David's men. It says, in three of the thirty chief men, um, let me find it here. Yeah, verse twenty. And Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzor, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two warriors of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. In some translations it says he chased the lion down in there and he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benai went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. And then think about the New Testament. Peter, how spiritually strong he was. Think about Paul in his life. 2 Corinthians 11, he gives his autobiography. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, robbers, and my own people, Gentiles, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Doesn't sound like a run of the litter, does it? We need physically and spiritually strong men in our churches who are willing to stand up for Christ. We need strong Christian men in our families, our churches, our communities, in our nation or it's never going to be great again. I don't care who the president is. To become and stay strong as Christian men and women, here's four things that we need to do quickly. One, read our Bible daily. We're about to have a fast in our church. You don't survive based upon the food that goes in your body. You survive based upon that God upholds your life with His Word. What did Jesus say? This is our food. He is our bread. You wouldn't go a whole month without eating food. 
Don't go a whole month without reading and eating God's Word. Second, pray regularly. That means you talk and sometimes you shut up and you listen. Think about our conversations. Most of the time, what is it? One way. I talk and Vicki listens. And when she talks, you know what I'm doing? I'm waiting for her to stop talking so then I can say what I want to say. That's how we are in our conversations, isn't it? That's how we are in our conversations spiritually. We're not really sitting to wait and actually hear what God wants to tell us. Third is fellowship weekly. There's strength in numbers. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And then arm ourselves incessantly. We must put on the armor of God to stand strong. A great example of this is Asa in 2 Chronicles 15. The Lord told him to be strong. And in verses 8 to 15, I mean, he's just destroying all the idols in Israel and he's turning them back to the Lord. And then it says that he gets sick and he saw everything else to bring himself back to being strong other than actually seeking the Lord. So be strong, draw from him daily. The last thing is do everything in love. The word is agape. In olden times, it meant to prefer, to prefer. So it's divine love, what God prefers. Notice that it says in love. Love is the very atmosphere in which we live. One pastor said this. He said, it doesn't matter if a man is strong, brave, and watchful if he doesn't act out of love. We should be careful that Christ's love not only reigns in our hearts, but that it also shines in our lives. Why? Because it's the supreme commandment in the kingdom from what Jesus said. It's actually proof that we are Jesus' disciples. Romans 12.9 says it's to be genuine, not fake, two-faced. It's to gush out of us like Niagara Falls, living waters to burn in us hotter than a supernova. Without it touching everything that we do in our families and in our own lives and here at Crossway according to 1 Corinthians 13 3 and the message translation we're bankrupt without love amen this church is bankrupt without love one last point before we get to conclusion and I haven't done anything scientifically to prove this but I would imagine more women than men know their spiritual gift and experience has taught me, being in the ministry, youth ministry, and now as a pastor, that very few Christians even know their spiritual gift. I mean, if you know your spiritual gift, raise your hand. Alright? How many of you want to know your spiritual gift? Raise your hand. Whether you already know it or don't, if you want to know your spiritual gift, raise your hand. Now you see all the hands are up. Listen to this. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, you know what he's talking about? Spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, you know what he's talking about? Spiritual gifts. And then, bam, we have this one little chapter that we only read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, right slap dab in the middle of two chapters of discussion on spiritual gifts. So guess what Paul is saying that love shown towards other people is? 
a spiritual gift. And you know what he then says about all the other spiritual gifts? They're going to pass away. Whether you say that speaking in tongues is still active, guess what? In the long run, it's going to fold up like a house of cards. But you know what ain't? Love. And so Paul says, love never ends. And his final instruction is this, pursue love. And so like I've asked you before, how is your one another blood level? How's your one another blood level here at Crossway? Is it showing up here in how you act? Guys, is it showing up in a big way in your house? How many of you guys, if I had to have you raise your hand, would be embarrassed whether to raise it or not if I said, how often do you regularly tell your wife and your kids, I love you? It was something that I never rarely ever heard from my father. He might say, man, you did a good job, you know, and good job, son, and this and that, but rarely heard those words. And I told myself that when I had a wife and a family that I would never ever let them go a day that they did not know that Buffy Cook loved them. I won't leave out of the house without kissing my wife and telling her I love her even if I'm mad at her. Because I never know that might be the last time I see her. Guys, they may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love them based upon what you do for them day in and day out. But guess what? People need to hear it. And your wife needs to hear it. Your kids need to hear it. And not just hear it, you prove it. If I had Jesus come up here and draw blood from you, the great position, love equals T-I-M-E blood level, how would you be doing? Because it's not just saying that I love you, it's proving that I love you. And one of the best ways to prove that you love somebody is what? Spend time with them. You see, manliness ain't who can bench press the most. Who can be the most aggressive and who can throw the other in a judo throw or get somebody in a rear naked choke or do some crazy act of manlyhood. True manliness is strength that shows itself in love. And so Paul says do everything in love. You know what everything means in the Greek? Everything. Everything. In closing, David Livingstone, he was a missionary pioneer. He actually worked in Africa. And some friends wrote him and said this, said, David, we would like to send other men to you. Have you found a good road into your area yet? And Livingstone wrote back, If you have men who only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. He wanted a few good men. You know that's all the Lord ever needs? He doesn't need a million men. He just needs a few good men that are strong and faithful. Amen? Amen. I read from you before David had three men and 30. 33 total men that were his strongest warriors in the kingdom. What did Jesus have to, according to Acts 17.6, turn the world upside down? Twelve men that he poured his life into. 
And so how I want to conclude this is how do you think God measures the greatness of the church? Think about this. How do we measure the greatness of a boxer? Is it how his record? He's 40 and 1. Is it how many knockouts he's got? How many world titles? Have you ever heard this? Pound for pound, he's the best fighter in the world. You ever heard that? It's the greater measure. And so, as pastors and as members of a church, we can easily confuse the measure of greatness in a local church. We all know and admire the heavyweights and they've got numbers in their church that are the size of small cities. And some people would say, now look at that church here on Father's Day and their attendance. Look how many they've got. It's the size of the whole town of Mason. Now look down there at little old Crossway Baptist Church. They ain't even got 70 folks down there on Father's Day today. Numbers don't translate to church health, brothers and sisters. And numbers don't translate into folks that are sold out for Jesus Christ and that are making disciples the world over. And numbers don't tell you how much of God's justice, social justice, in meeting the needs of people in a county are being delivered through a local body of believers. Pound for pound is the greater measure. Daniel 5.27 You have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. There are many churches today and I would propose in our own Big Hatchie Baptist Association that God would bring them down and say, alright, let's put you on the scale over here and let's weigh you. You've been found wanting. You've got all this fluff and you got a brand new paid parking lot and a brand new building and you got 50 programs for kids and moms and dads and this and that and you ain't even been on a mission trip in the last year. You're not even sold out for Jesus Christ and fulfilling the Great Commission. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. I do not need a church at Crossway Baptist Church that is fluffed with 193 billion people. I don't even necessarily need it to be built with a fluff of 200 people. All I need and Jimmy needs is your pastor here at Crossway Baptist Church is a handful of people that are sold out for Jesus Christ. I don't care if our numbers were 80 last Mother's Day and they get down to 10. If the 10 that are left are sold out for Jesus Christ, we can go and make a massive impact the world over. And so as it's been said, God doesn't count Christians. He weighs them. He puts you in the balance. Just as He did Belshazzar. And God weighs churches pound for pound, not seat for seat. And one of the greatest pound for pound categories is men. Is men. But what our own Southern Baptist people have done is relegated men to two feet of aisle space on the very back of the flagship bookstore of our faith. That's what our Southern Baptist Convention thinks of men. I mean, now they don't really. But if you look at that, is that not the impression that you come away with? And if you go down 
the second Baptist, free will Baptist, traditional Baptist, whatever you want to call it, church anywhere in America today, the one thing you're not going to find is men. But when you look at the pages of Scripture, it's a whole different story. You see men everywhere that are bruising heavyweights and they are gobbling up spiritual real estate for Jesus Christ and for God's kingdom. And so here's the whole big thing on that. A church that's overweight with numbers but short on healthy men is not a good pound for pound church. A church lightweight with numbers but heavy on healthy men is a good pound for pound church. What's God looking for at Crossway Baptist Church this morning? Is He looking for us to have a membership of 500? He's looking for a few good men. That doesn't throw the women out. But He's looking for a few good men who will stand in the gap for Christ today that will be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, and do all in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for everything that You have done for us. Father, we not only thank You for that, but Father, even before we thank You for what You have done for us, we just thank You for who You are. As we looked at in Sunday school this morning, Father, in Daniel 9, He said, even when You judge, Father, You are righteous. And Father, when You do judge, in anything and everything You do in our lives, it is motivated by mercy. Father, thank You that You did not give this old boy what he deserved, which is eternal damnation, but You have given him Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You that You have given each and every one of us Him for those who will put their faith and trust in Him. And so, Father, I pray as we come to this time of invitation, if there is anyone here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be that day. I pray that You again would just encourage and edify our men. I thank You so much that we have a church full of men here at Crossway. We just give You all the praise and honor and glory for that. And I pray that you would just continue, Father, to lead us and guide us as we go forward to build your kingdom. We ask this now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So as we come to the time of invitation, on the day in which we honor our fathers, we must not forget, indeed at our own peril would forget, to honor the greatest father of all. Amen. And that's our heavenly father. As I thought on this yesterday, you know what song immediately came to my mind? Good, good father. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. How good is he? So good that he gave Jesus to die for us. And some today would say, well, and actually do, based on that, our heavenly father is not a good father, but indeed he's bad because to kill his own son, that's nothing more than divine child abuse. Yet what did Jesus say? Nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. And greater love hath no man than this, than he give his life for his friends. Can you imagine that? God, the Heavenly Father, calls us his friend. So as we come to the cross, we not only see the goodness of the Father, we see a steadfast love that endures forever. You're a good, good Father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by God. You, it's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. And later it says, oh, it's love so undeniable.
I can hardly speak. So all sin comes short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death. But God commendeth His love towards us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what would be the greatest Father's Day gift today for our Heavenly Father? If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you would come receive His Son today, repenting of your sins and asking Him to forgive you. So as we stand for this time of invitation, if there's anyone here today that needs to make a decision for salvation, I pray the Holy Spirit will convict you to do that today. Anyone else uh, that's been visiting and you feel God is calling you to join us here, or if there was just something that was said today that you want to come to the altar and lay at the altar, just pray that you would listen to the Lord as we sing. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows Well